You are listening to History Man, a project of vkbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're talking to Kirk Johnson, the state park manager of the Andrew Jackson State Park in Lancaster, South Carolina. Kirk, we're back, uh, we're back for our second episode on Andrew Jackson, and we're looking to you to kind of give us a firsthand look of Andrew Jackson, who uh, grew up in this area. This is an area that was talked about on previous episodes by uh, Kip Carter and Scott Seifert, and love to hear what you have to tell us about Andrew Jackson. Great. Uh, Andrew Jackson, to the surprise of many people, actually was born and grew up in the Carolinas in the late 1700s, and the big event that surrounded his childhood was the American Revolution. The British Army had established an outpost at Hanging Rock, a camp, so that they had a supply base to reach out into the communities while they were trying to convert people. And here on the Crawford Farms, mainly Robert's Crawford's Farm, which was close to the creek, uh, some of Sumter's men, Thomas Sumter's men, started forming quietly as a militia. And uh, Robert and Andrew Jackson every day got to go and watch the soldiers train and drill and be soldiers. And like you said, at 13, that's still a big deal too. Right. Even though he's seen what could happen. And again, this is where he gets reacquainted with William Davy and he sees Davy leading these troops and being in charge. And so all of this stuff is starting to form in his mind that the military is the way he likes to spend his time. He's gets close to battle the first time in August of 1780 and that's when Thomas Sumter decides to attack the outpost at Hanging Rock and Sumter sends his men in and William Davies part of this battle and Jackson is given the job of holding the horses because the militia all had their own personal horses that they took into combat but they didn't actually ride into battle they would ride to the battle then become foot soldiers and so Jackson's down in the bed of the creek while the battle's on the bluff over his head. So he's hearing everything going on, and he's probably seeing wounded soldiers come back off the field. And the Hanging Rock battle was a little bit unusual in that it lasted four hours. It was a long battle for that time. It Tell, really was. Uh, I know we were talking to uh, Kip Carter, and he was saying that they reenacted the Cowpens battle. And that was over in the matter of minutes. Right. We're talking four hours. That's, that's a substantial uh, engagement, especially when you think about how much ammo they had to bring that they needed in a battle to sustain it that long. Yes, and they certainly didn't have that ammo, so they were they were making do for hours on end. And I and I like to think about it being August, first part of August, the dog days as we call them now. Right. And you know, it was just people probably wearing out there too. Sure, sure. But uh, I think the one interesting thing about this particular battle is that at one point the militia and the Continentals that are involved in the battle look around them and see a well-supplied British camp and decide, you know what, we've had enough fighting, let's break into the rum. Right. <laughs> and so after fighting all these hours in the hot and they fill up on rum, the battle stops real quickly. The Patriots weren't very well stocked with that sort of thing anyway. They were, they were struggling to to stay in camp and to stay fed in right. any respect. Yeah, this, this would have been a good day for them. And because they stopped the fight, the Patriots claimed victory. Uh, because the British held the campsite, they claimed victory. Right. So, you know, no one ever decided exactly who was the real winner. Uh, but within a couple of weeks, 
Horatio Gates' Continental Army came down from the north and attacked Cornwallis and his soldiers at Camden and lost badly. And within a couple of weeks, the Jacksons were on the run. I heard that uh, that he was used as a messenger, a courier. Uh... There's a there's there's a possibility. Um, the problem was is once Gates lost at Camden, that meant the organized American forces were gone, and Sumter had been attacked and pretty well scattered at Fishing Creek, which is south of us a little bit. So there was really no men or organized army in the community to protect anymore. Cornwallis decided that he was going to continue his invasion north and leave Camden behind him. And so as the armies are moving up the road, everybody's getting out of the way. Uh, one thing that you know you alluded to, the Patriots hurting for supplies, well, whatever community you were in was where you got your food supplies at that time right. for both armies. And so here at harvest time, what crops that might still exist were left for the British Army. Right. And everybody pretty much abandoned the Waxhaws who lived here, both, both if you were a Patriot or a Loyalist. Uh, the Jacksons and the McCamies started north. They first went to Charlottetown or Charlotte. And as the armies approached there, they went on the move again and went as far as what was then called Guilford Courthouse, uh, where McCamies had some relatives there. And that's just outside of Greensboro, North Carolina today. Mm-hmm. And they stayed there most of the winter of 1780. But that, those same roads kept going north, and uh, the armies followed them right on all the way up to Guilford as well. And so late February, late early March of 1781, the Jacksons left the Guilford area because the armies are up there now, and they came back home to the Waxhaws and probably didn't find a whole lot. Right. And was Jackson taken prisoner shortly after, shortly thereafter? When yeah, was... but but in between, he he turned 14 the same day the Battle of Guilford happened. I see. Okay. When he turned 14, he was allowed to join the militia. And I don't know if that's because they said that was the age or because they just needed people at that point. But he and Robert joined the local militia. He said that late March of 1781, they went over to Captain Land's house on the Catawba River, which is, is now... Lansford Canal? Same place. Okay. Don't know which side of the river he lived on, but he, he was the he was in charge of right there at that ford. And Captain Land had gone home to visit his wife and took a group with him to guard. And Jackson was in that group. And uh, they had a small skirmish with some loyalists who knew Captain Land had gone home. And uh, a little fight at night broke out and Jackson claimed that was the first time he ever shot anybody and um, the battle ended because one of the other local militia had a bugle and he got up on one of the ridges over the river and blew the bugle and the loyals thought more people were coming in to fight and they left. They came back home and that that was always the interesting thing is that Robert and Andrew go off and they fight and then they come back home to their mother's house wait to do it again and about April 15th of 1781 uh, they received notice to go to the Waxhaw Meeting House and gather up for a muster. What was happening was a group of cavalry came out of Camden and were coming into the Waxhaws to get food and provision and whatever else they could for the British forces. And so they're all sitting at the Waxhaw Meeting House and a group of people ride in on horses. And you know, if you're a loyalist or a patriot in the backcountry, you dress alike. And the only way they often could tell one another as friend or foe was if somebody put a decoration in their hat like a piece of pine 
branch or something like that. But anyway, these guys rode in and nobody really paid any attention to them. But then all of a sudden the guys part and out come the green jacketed British Legion cavalrymen who are leading the raid. And so a little battle erupts there at the meeting house. Everybody scatters. Robert and Andrew go and hide in a creek overnight. And uh, at night they saw the glow of the meeting house being burned by the British Army. And they wait the whole night in the creek hiding. Well, they're teenage boys. The next morning they wake up hungry. And their cousin's house is just down the creek from them. So they decide they can go get some food there. They just have to be careful. And uh, they went into the house and were eating. And from the opposite direction of where they came into the house, British Army troopers rode into the same yard. And they find the boys in the house with muskets. So, you know, they declare them prisoners. The officer, which some research suggests that it was a man named George Hanger. At was the he time. a loyalist officer? Or was he actually a he, British? He was part of the British Legion, which was a loyalist union. Okay. And uh, he had been stationed in Camden, and he was in charge of this expedition to find supplies. Okay. Anyway, he walks up to Andrew Jackson and says, boy, clean my boots. Okay, well, Jackson hadn't read his mama's letter at this point, you know. <laughs> Right. And uh, he said, uh, this 14-year-old boy looks up and he says, Sir, I'm a prisoner of war and expected to be treated as such. I'll do no such thing. Well, the officer's furious and whips out his sword and strikes Jackson. And Jackson puts his left hand up and it cuts his left wrist and the tip of the sword hits him in the forehead and knocks him over. And the officer turns to his brother Robert, makes the same demand. Well, you know, brothers are going to not outdo each other. So Robert says the same thing, but he didn't get his hand to block the blow and his head got cut a little more severely than Andrews did by the sword. And so at that point, they are both taken up and they walk to Camden. 50 miles. 50 miles. And they're put into the public jail or brick. It's a brick building, two-story brick building with a lot of other American or Patriot prisoners. And, uh, while they're there, they get smallpox and Jackson, they're probably in this jail for about two weeks. During that time, uh, the U.S. Continental Army comes to Camden again, this time led by Nathaniel Green, and they have a battle called the Battle of Hobbskirk Hill. Jackson said that he opened up a hole in the prison window. They had boarded it over so nobody could see what was going on, but he said, he was able to look through a hole in the window boards and watch the battle in progress. About 10 years ago, some locals went to where the jail sat and looked back up what's 521 in Camden today. And It's a long way. It's a long way. You might have seen some smoke. You might have seen some soldiers moving towards the action, but right. he probably didn't see the actual fighting going on. That's right. But uh, the Continental Army lost that battle. but it put enough pressure on the British that they decided to abandon Camden. And that was a break for Andrew Jackson because uh, during the battle, some British soldiers had been captured and somehow their mother found this out and was able to persuade the British to exchange her two sons for the British prisoners captured because nobody wanted to really deal with prisoners that much. And so, the boys were given over to their mother before the British abandoned Camden and then they had one horse and they put Robert who was really sick at this point on the horse 
and they walked back to here. The weather was spring weather. They had several showers that they had to go through, and by the time they both got home, Andrew and Robert were deeply sick of smallpox, and Robert was suffering from his head wounds still. And Robert probably lived two or three days when they returned home, and then he died. Andrew's got a serious case of smallpox. Don't know if he's going to make it. And he struggled until June, and he turned the corner in June, and once he looked like he was going to be healthy, that's when his mother decided she needed to take care of her nephews who were on the prison ships in Charleston. She you know, left him his her letter of advice. That was the last time he saw her. What a hard life. Really when was. You think, you think about Andrew's mom. Her husband dies. They're in a new country. Her oldest boy dies. And she had to go all the way to Camden to plead for their life to get them out. Brings them all the way back. That's when her second boy dies. Now she's going down to try to save the nephews. Right. And she dies down there. Dies down there. Uh, and the nephews die too, yes? One of them did. One of them did. Right. Yeah, she, we think, caught when, or what they called ship's fever. Okay. While in Charleston. And she was buried. Wow. And Jackson never found where the grave was. The Popper Cemetery at that time was outside of the city boundaries, which in today's world would be beyond north of Francis Marion Square. And President Jackson interviewed people that supposedly knew her or knew of her at that time. And you know, always had people kind of looking for her and never did find where she was buried. Today, if you go to Charleston, there's two different monuments for her, one on the campus of the Citadel and one a little bit further out. You know, it says Andrew Jackson's mother's buried somewhere near here. I see. So. Uh, what, a, what a tough start for one of the, uh, the presidents of the United States. There. Really was. And no one can say he actually came from money. No, no. <laughs> There were different stories over the years that, you know, he inherited money from his grandfather and all. We never can really find that for certain. After she dies, he sticks around Robert Crawford's house. Robert Crawford's become a commissary station for Nathaniel Green's army. So he needs help with loading supplies and unloading goods as they're delivered. And so Jackson works here for a little bit. Uh, He has a run-in with an older man who questioned... Jackson's opinion on something or tried to give him too much authority and Jackson threatened to send him a kingdom come if he didn't stop. Uh, Shortly thereafter, he's on a trip to Charleston where he's taking horses down. Weird but true, uh, the state, South Carolina State Archives has a signature from probably the 15-year-old Andrew Jackson where he received horses for the commissary in their collection. Wow. Okay. How that survived and somebody knew to keep that all these years, who knows. But anyway, so he's traveling back and forth between Charleston on some of these missions with the commissary. But after he had the run-in with Mr. Galbraith, as he called him, he decided it was time to maybe change careers. And uh, he tried saddle making, he tried teaching, a number of different things. And it just, I think his mind just kind of went back to, well, who did good? coming from the area and he looked at what William Davy did and one of his cousins after the war officially ended had decided to go study law in Salisbury under Spruce McKay the same that William Davy did and he was taking on young men to read and try to understand the law it wasn't it was more like an internship that you worked and clerked for the lawyer instead of actually formal training but you were supposed to gather this information up as you 
worked and eventually then you could apply for the bar. And so in 1784, Andrew Jackson left the Waxhaws and never looked back. Where did he go immediately after the Waxhaws? I mean, to, he went to, to Salisbury. Went straight to Salisbury. And where did he go from there? Um, probably spent three years or so around Salisbury. And then when North Carolina opened up what they were calling the Tennessee Territory, he went west. I see. Ended up in a community called Jonesboro today that was sort of a early territorial center for the Tennessee Territory. But then he just kept moving west. And I mean, like a lot of the other veterans, if you served, you know, in the U.S. military during the Revolution, you got land. Mm -hmm. And all of this land was in these new territories opening west. So, you know, Jackson, like a lot of others from the Waxhaws and various other colonies, just continued moving west as new land became available. I appreciate the stories, and it's it's interesting. Jackson's story, like you said, continues on from here. This is kind of like where it all started, right? But it continues on into Tennessee, and then through uh, you know Indian Wars and wars with uh, England again, and then all of a sudden he's in the White House, and so you see him in many of the uh, different territories throughout the the birth of this nation but it all started here. What would you want people to take away from their visit here? Uh, some of what we've already spoke about that, you know, this young man's life here was probably very similar to the other young men of his age in that, you know, there was loss and there was hard times. You know, he took a really bad situation and worked his whole life to improve and to the point where, you know, he's the most powerful man in the nation. And he, you know, didn't let the tough times of his childhood stop him from achieving the goals of, you know, what we, you know, call the American dream. I mean, he was an early example of it. And, you know, when he becomes president, you know, he's, he's a Revolutionary War veteran like the others prior to him had been. But he was the first one that did not come from the founding fathers in any way and represented that new nation that they had created. What does liberty mean to you, Kurt? Just having the freedom to make of yourself what you want. And that, you know, just, just like Andrew Jackson's story, that the circumstances do not have to keep you in the same place your whole life if you choose otherwise. And that, you know, you are trying to create your story and not having your story told to you before you even get a chance. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoyed being I appreciate it.